I'm Mark Kane with the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Today, we are so pleased to be joined by Malcolm Frank, President of Digital Business and Technology at Cognizant. Malcolm is also on Equal AI's board and happens to be one of our all-time favorite speakers. He co-authored two best-selling books, What to Do When Machines Do Everything and Code Halos, both of which received multiple international book awards and has authored numerous white papers focusing on the future of work, which we hope to touch base on today, uh, created the term Smack Stack, which is now an industry standard, and is the subject of a Harvard Business School case, I, I think our first case study uh, on, this, on this podcast. So we'll uh, hope to hear more about that as well. Malcolm, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So let's start back with your origin into ethical, responsible AI. When did this first become a concern and interest for you? Boy, great question. Probably five, six, seven years ago. In fact, it was the reason that we wrote that book, Code Halos. Um, and the Code Halo is just that, that halo of data that's around you. It's your, it's your digital twin. And the recognition that... Um, it could be a real force for evil if used the wrong way. And we were worried, gosh, that was six, seven, eight years ago of how that was going to manifest in society. And, and it's now here. So um, we've been on the trail of this for a, a long, long time. And just the effect that it's happening across every facet of society. And since we've had social media come to the fore an explosion in many, many negative things uh, that are going on, the power that these organizations have, the, the intrusion upon privacy. And what has started with the FANG vendors is now really going mainstream into governments. It's going into uh, across the entire Fortune 500, and it's creating all sorts of ethical questions that um, I think it's going to take us a generation to wrestle most of these to the ground. So. Uh, with that, um, I was so thrilled when our paths crossed. Um, I'm so excited about the charter of Equal AI. Um, and I think, Miriam, for you and your team, it's one. It's sort of like Wikipedia. I remember Wikipedia like in 2005. Nobody really knew what it was. And by 2008, everybody knew what it was. Um, I think Equal AI is going to be similar in that sense because this is something everybody has to deal with. Um, and... Yeah, I've been working in the AI field for an extended period now. And if you take a step back, it really is, AI is just a tool. Now, the issue is it's an extraordinarily powerful tool, but it's a tool. Or a different way of saying it, it's just a catalyst. And AI, whatever it touches, it will catalyze. So if something is useful and healthy, it's a catalyst for that. Um, a simple example that we all use is like ways when you drive in your car. Um, it's, you know, clearly had an environmental impact. We don't drive around lost. Um, you know, who knows how many accidents it's prevented because people know where they're going. I know for sure it has stopped or limited a lot of spouses getting into fights with one another about how to get from point A to point B. So, you know, we can all fight about something else, but we don't have to fight about how to get to the restaurant or get to our friend's friend's house for a party. So, um, here's to that. Yeah. So it's things like that. AI has made everyday life a bit easier and a bit better. And we're not crazy for using these social media platforms. They, they really do enhance life in many 
wonderful and important ways. But on the other hand, if something is bad, AI will catalyze what's bad. And this is where I think your charter is so vitally important that, look, in, in 2020, it really came to the fore of dealing with inequality that's in our institutions, inequality that's just in our society, that's in, in business. And when AI gets thrown on top of those unresolved issues, it will be a force for evil. It will only catalyze them. So I think we need to take a step back and be very conscious about this and really understand those underlying issues in the physical world and what is the role of AI in the digital world on top of those and what happens when you mix that cocktail up. So what you and the team are doing, I think is extraordinarily important. Well, I should, I should point out that um, Wikipedia just celebrated its 20 year anniversary. And so I'm, I'm hoping that in 20 years, uh, we'll all be looking back uh, to this conversation um, to a, a, an accurate and, and perhaps even um, an under, under prediction of equal AI's <laughs> impact and import uh, over, the, over the coming years. Uh, I think that's a great place to start the conversation, Malcolm. And, you know, I think the 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 last couple of years have been really a sea change in terms of recognition that these issues are out there. And one of the things that we've seen is a lot of principles that have been put out by companies, by governments, international organizations around how to do AI ethically. I think what's lagged behind that is a shift from taking those principles and actually putting them into practice. And so I'm curious to hear from you in your experience uh, in a leadership role in a company and also working with lots of other companies, what have you seen in terms of how can companies ethically navigate the digital age? And what are the practical steps that companies can take to actually operationalize those principles and, and put them into practice in their everyday operations? Yep. Yep. Well, look, Mark, it's, th this is the $64,000 question and it's incredibly tough because let's just start with ethics. Um, are, are we going to go with, your ethics, Mark, or are we going to go with Miriam's or are we going to go with mine? And now that, that may sound like a ridiculous question, but um, I'll give an example. Kai-Fu Lee, who is really a, you know, very, very thoughtful and a real leader in AI. And he's transcends many different cultures because he spent so much time in the U.S. He's Taiwanese, spends time in China now. And if you think of that question He's, he's quite thoughtful in saying you know, in the U.S., maybe this comes from going back to Jeffersonian principles, but we really look out for what's best for the individual and protect the rights of the individual. And he was saying a, a Chinese mindset, for example, is much more utilitarian. They will say, no, 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 we're going to worry about what's best for the 10,000. And if a few people get injured, but we get 9,995 who are far ahead, well, that that's easy deal. Um, whereas the Americans would really focus on, on what happened to those five unfortunate souls. So that is a different set of values and ethics that then inform policy in how you govern something within AI. So, you know, for example, just to follow through on that, exa on that example, um, if you were to collect public health data, uh, in the U.S., we would find that intolerable with HIPAA and all the rest. But in China, they go, of course you would do that. That makes perfect sense. So when you bring that aperture now to a global corporation, 
this is where this gets really tricky. That what is acceptable in society A may not be acceptable in society B. And then where does the organization step in on that? And we're seeing it right in front of our faces with what's happening with Facebook and Twitter and the governance of those platforms, who's responsible for what shows up on them, um, so forth and so on. It gets politicized. You go to people, different ends of the political spectrum and different views on it. You go from Texas to New York and people have very different views on it. So this is where corporate leaders are stuck in the middle of this. Um, now, in our work, I spend time with clients where we're tending to deal with much more practical and prosaic issues. Um, so these can be things around fraud detection and risk management in a bank and using AI to solve that problem. It can be in an industrial setting. How do I get to predictive maintenance on elevators just to make sure that they don't break? Um, so these are a lot of the types of things that we're getting involved with where the ethical considerations aren't as large as the ones that you're describing. But I'll tell you this, um, I can go through 10 case studies just off the top of my head where clients have run into this and it has slowed down their AI efforts. And the short answer to your question, they're asking the government to solve it. So if I'm an insurance firm headquartered in Hartford, Connecticut, I'm just saying, please state of Connecticut, US government, can you just make the call on this? Um, so they're sort of punting to the jurisdictions they're in as opposed to working through it and solving it themselves. And for those clients that can't afford to wait, so when you see clients developing a product where there's potential liability and harm, where there's ethical problems really at the forefront or given your sophistication with the issues uh, that you see embedded and, and that will surface, how do you advise clients to navigate this space knowing that, as you say, values can be different depending on individuals, cultures, norms, et cetera, as well as the legal governing bodies within our own country, let alone when you're talking to all the global companies you work with? Yep. Uh, the answer is call 1-800-EQUAL-AI. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm quite serious. So, so Mary, let, let me walk through what we're seeing. First of all, the beginning of your question nobody can wait. And so we're, we're in this gap of time. This is similar to the automotive industry in the 20s. That you know, it, was, it was the wild, wild west. It was game on. So you, know, you got your Model T and there's, there's no safety equipment. The streets didn't have any proper lines or so forth. There's no speed limits. Um, if somebody asked, you know, how far is the drive from Columbus to Cleveland? The answer was it's, it's a six pack. Um, so it's... You know, but nobody was going to slow down in selling a car. Um, it's just we had, and I think the gap is the same here. It's remarkable. What, I think when we look back, we're going to say, wow, we were on digital time from pick an era from 2005 to 2030. We were on digital time, and yet the government was still on government time. And so nobody can wait. And the, so the, the question you're asking is so important that you, they need to resolve it. What we have seen is some companies have tried to create their own digital ethics panels. Um, we have seen those that have been established. And I can tell you, they almost universally fail. Um, they turn into debating societies. A couple of clients I know, they refer to them as the Office of Business Prevention. Um, people think they need to justify their existence by finding everything that could possibly go wrong 
as opposed to saying, no, my job is to facilitate healthy and safe and legal and ethical business. Um, and so it's, it's usually, but, you know, on the other hand, if you only give it to those who are responsible for the revenue, um, it can go pear-shaped very, very quickly. And I think this is where we saw the FANG vendors really getting in trouble with, with that approach. So it's finding the right balance. And finding the right balance is learning from the mistakes of others. I think there's this parochialism that shows up in corporations or even a narcissism of not invented here. So maybe this, they'll just say, oh, well, this is the first time we've seen this. We presume it's the first time anybody has seen it. And I can tell you that is absolutely not the case. And so it's working with trusted third bodies and entities who can help them navigate uh, these types of things. And so that's with consulting firms. Um, we see that the, the McKinsey's, Bain's, BCG's are jumping into this. Uh, firms like Cognizant, Accenture, and others, Deloitte, are jumping into this field um, to assist. Uh, and I, But I think this is where Equal AI um, could really be that trusted third party where people come together, where a firm would say, hey, this is the first time we're seeing it, but they could see examples where 10 other organizations faced exactly the same issue and the best practices will emerge. So even though people would love to punt and just say, I just want to see a law somewhere and I'll live up to the letter of the law. I think we're in a window of time for five to 10 years where you're, you're just going to have to roll your own. Yeah, that's, um, I think, music to our ears, because this is something that Miriam and I are working together to, to try to create, is that kind of connective tissue between different organizations that are uh, trying to solve similar problems in their own context, where that kind of peer exchange and learning really could help a lot. Um, you have also worked on a number of different areas um, uh, besides AI that uh, touch on um, is security and ethics. Uh, I think in particular, you've, 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 you've been involved in the cybersecurity space. Um, just curious if you have any thoughts on what the AI ethics and risk reduction community and, and space can learn from some of these other spaces. Are there any good models out there for how this collaboration has been done well, or uh, should we just be sort of starting from first principles here? Yeah, wow, that's that's a great question. Um, well, let me draw a parallel, or at least attempt to. Um, it's the first time I've really thought about this, Mark. But um, what we've all lived through with cybersecurity, and maybe there's some things or parallels to come with with AI and, and ethics within AI. Um, it's, I, I think, and I'll be a corporate apologist on this one, but I think uh, corporate corporations are really on the back foot in an unfair situation when it comes to ransomware, uh, when it comes to cybersecurity, because there are people and organizations incredibly sophisticated, often funded by certain governments that are just sitting out there. And there is no way that a company that is number 426 on the Fortune 500 can protect themselves against that entity. And so it's you know, what's the old joke? You know, there, there are those companies that have been hacked and those companies that don't know they've been hacked. It's, it's, so it's, if you look, for example, going all the way back, I think this is where you do need to have a form of government intervention. And you know, the Trump administration, you know, they created the fifth wing of the military around space. I was thinking that, you know, they really should have focused on cyber. That should have been the fifth wing of the military. 
uh, because it does it, it merits a military level response. And there's precedent. Um, the reason we have the Marines was actually to protect commercial trade across the Atlantic and to defend against the Barbary pirates. It's those merchants couldn't do it on their own. They needed the government to assist. And I think this is at the scale where you need that level of assistance. It leads to the second point that we were just talking about, that when that individual firm gets hacked from a certain group somewhere around the globe, um, they don't know the best practice. They don't know how to defend themselves, how to react to it. If it's a situation where you negotiate, how do you negotiate with those entities? How do you remediate? How do you get the malware off your network? It's most organizations, this is really virgin territory. And at least, you know, there's always somebody who runs corporate security, but they're sort of like the fireman who lives in a town where there's never been a fire. Um, and so they just come into this situation where it's gone from zero to a hundred and they don't understand how to approach it. So there would be third parties that would understand that. And um, it, it's uh, this is something that I think really needs to be built up. So the same thing is happening with AI, that it's such a powerful tool and can get weaponized so quickly that I think a lot of leaders, be it in the technology organization or just certainly at the business level of an organization, don't fully understand that and don't recognize how it should be managed and governed. Um, and so I think you just need to learn from others uh, in the same way that we've seen with cyber. Um, we're starting to see the same thing exists with, uh, with AI. And we've been so fortunate at Equal Eye to benefit from your insights in cyber in particular, uh, as we think through how to build the community that was built uh, over a decade ago in the cyberspace so that people can come together and solve some of these issues that will become national security and certainly uh, harmful if not addressed together in a united fashion as when appropriate. That's right. And so you're talking about some of the the big picture issues and, and some of the ways that we'll need uh, government intervention. You've talked about some of the laws. I think uh, it'd be really interesting to hear your thoughts on if you were advising the Biden administration, if you had a meeting with the president, uh, what one or two pieces of advice you would give to him and his team? Wow. Um, I, I think the first is we've got to get our arms around uh, privacy. And it, it, that is so fundamental to a democracy. And I mean, that horse is so far out of the barn, across the field, across the meadow. Um, but I think that I, we will look back historically and say in that very compressed period of time, those people, Americans, something that they believed in so adamantly for two centuries, in such a compressed period of time, we're just willing to give it away so that they could do trivial social things online. Um, and I think that that needs to be regained. And it, this is one of those things that um, when you're in this field, we all walk around, those who are sophisticated in IT on these types of issues, we'll sort of look at each other and think, when is the collective aha going to occur? You know, and every year, like that, that line just gets pushed, you know, a year. They're like, there's there's no way that people would tolerate knowing what these organizations know about them. Um, and yet you would be horrified if somebody sat down with you 
and said, just spend an hour at the kitchen table. Let's take these 10 companies and I'm going to explain to you what they know about you. You would be, you would be shocked. And it's, we don't need to go too far back into history to learn that organizations or governments, they got their hands on that and things mutated really badly. Um, you know, there's, there's always the old lines, what would the Nazis do with the data that, you know, people have on, on individuals these days. So I think that um, that is pretty foundational. And I think that you know, we can start to regain a lot around that as individuals without having to give up a lot in terms of the enjoyment that we gain out of some of these platforms. Um, there's no reason that your weather app needs to know every 15 seconds precisely where you are within two meters. Um, you know, it's, it's things like that. So I think there's something that, that really uh, can um, be transitioned there. I think a second is if you look at it from a FANG perspective, this is not anything unique or novel, um, but you know, from an antitrust standpoint, it's pretty hard these days to argue that these firms should continue as they are. And you know, we were all there. I was there when you know, AT&T was broken up. Um, we saw that with just the threat of Microsoft. Um, and you see when these organizations do go through that, in the American system, it actually unleashes an incredible amount of innovation. Mm -hmm. And so I think actually that um, you know, a second thing would be, you're taking a hard look at some of these platforms um, and should they be broken up into, into component pieces? I think it may be better for the shareholders. It would probably be better, for, it certainly be better for the consumer. And I think midterm, long-term would drive completely new levels of innovation in the tech market. While you're talking about innovation, if you don't mind, if I could ask for a third recommendation, I, I know I'm being greedy here, but you have given so much thought to the future of work and how we can make sure that we are innovative and inclusive. Um, I know you also grew up in Cleveland and saw what happened when there is not, uh, when the city doesn't evolve in the way that it needs to, to support jobs and growth. I wonder if you have a recommendation for the government and how they can support uh, a beneficial AI future for a more inclusive population. Well, um, it's, a, it's a great question. Yeah, this this is a bit personal to me because uh, I I grew up in northern northeast Ohio. I love it. I always wanted to live there as an adult, and just you know, I I couldn't work in you know, the industry that I did because of it. Um, and if you look at the mindset of civic leaders, then it was this. Um, zero sum game mentality that if, you know, I get something that's going to come out of you and that permeated everything as opposed to a growth mentality. So, you know, when I was born there, it was the fifth wealthiest city in North America. And when I left, it was bankrupt. And that was when I was 18. So it was a really short window of time where things went horribly pear-shaped. And when you've lived through it, I got to tell you, I stare at California right now and I shake my head and I go, I have been to that bad movie. I know what that looks like. Um, and so it's how do you embrace this economic shift that we're going through? Um, and how do you create the environment that supports that? And I think this is 
so fundamentally important. I've, I've got a real passion about it because I, I know what the consequences look like and the consequences are brutal. Um, and if, if there's something that um, leaders need to do is to try to foster the entities that are going to drive that innovation in those communities, because right now there's a whole digital divide going on. If you look at what's happening with Bernieism and Trumpism, mm -hmm. um, I think they're opposite sides of the same coin. It's a whole, a huge portion of our population. Now they will skew far to the left or they'll skew far to the right, but they're talking about the same thing, which is this economic alienation. And it's as if places like Boston and Washington and New York and Seattle all through a big party. And I was not invited. And that creates an incredible level of alienation. But I think you have to have the wisdom in those communities to say, do I attract capital? It's, you know, it's, it's capital goes where it's welcome. And look at what's happening right now with Texas versus California. It's not that hard. Capital goes where it's welcome. And it's not just capital from um, what's occurring with corporations, with tax policy. It's what happens with um, the venture capital community. When you get a certain, with what's happening with private equity, when you go into, for example, angel investors, um, angel investors actually drive so much local innovation because those are the people that are going to reach in and are going to provide seed money for these businesses that could apply technology in that local community's context. But if those people are being taxed or chased out of the state, well, guess what? That innovation is going to leave with them. And so, you know, this is something that we've got to find the right balance here. And how do we provide the fuel in these communities to get from what I think is the third industrial revolution, which is the whole, you know, the this uh, industrial aut automation that we saw in the last century to get to the fourth, which is really around digital. And I think that there are going to be very distinct winners and losers around regions over the course of the next generation. It, to me, this is the great game that's going on. And um, if people take the zero summism that I witnessed in Northeast Ohio, like in 1976, and you see it all over the place, if that continues, um, those communities are doing uh, a tremendous, you know, th those leaders are doing a tremendous disservice to their community. That's, that's really, it's really insightful, Malcolm. And I think we, we here in California, where I live, see that there is so much, um, uh, focus on just managing the present and, 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 and in a sense looking backwards that um, I, I fear too that um, uh, that that sort of forward thinking visionary um, you know welcoming approach uh, sometimes gets 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 lost in the mix. Um, I wanted to ask you, you obviously think uh, very broadly and expansively about business, about community, about government policy um, and perhaps that's why, HBS, the Harvard Business School, uh, thought that you would be the good subject for a case study. Not everyone gets a case study written about them. So we wanted to hear a little bit about that experience um, and, and about that case study. Oh, well, that was completely different. I, I think the case study was written to show students, this is what you should not do. Um, <laughs> so it was, uh, I, I was much younger. I was a CEO of a uh, uh, internet services firm back in the time of the great happiness, better known as the internet bubble. And I, I can tell you, 
the first few years of that were probably the most intoxicating I've had in my career. And the third year, fourth year, it was just probably the worst time I had ever had in my career um, because it's amazing when you have a market that just disappears right in front of you. And how do you manage through that? But uh, it, it was just a, you know, a case study. It was their first video case study, actually. So they would um, you know, show these. So it was a weird sensation where I would get on an airplane once in a while and somebody would look across the aisle and where do I know you from? And Oh, I had to study you when I was in business school. Um, so that was, that's what the case study was all about. But um, it's, it's quite useful uh, and, and quite fun, actually. Um, Harvard has always been very open about it, where you go back and um, it's you stand in front of this lecture hall you know, with the tiers that they have there. And after they've gone through the case study, um, you know, the class will then give their perspective on it. Um, and it sort of feels like you know, you're going back every year to have your final paper graded yet again by you know 70 people who are all 10 years younger than you but um that's that's what that was all about it was a good experience well uh before we let you go there's one question we like to ask our guests to really hone down on what are you excited about fearful of looking forward to in ai and we do that through the question of what is your rose your thorn and your bud the rose i think that we need to make something good come out of what we've all been through in the last year. Um, to, to go across the line that we did in the U.S. of 500,000 is beyond tragic with COVID uh, and the deaths. Um, and I guess by the time we get out of our collective cave, it's going to be you know, 15, 16 months. So it's been horrible, but something good's got to come out of that. And I think what has come out of it is we have accelerated the adoption of digital technologies and AI in practical um, business focused ways. We probably covered five years worth of time in just one year. It's been an incredible accelerant. And so I think that we're gonna see that that's gonna be a catalyst for a lot of economic growth. Um, and it's gonna make just a lot of things in our personal lives much, much better. So we're working with clients as I described, um, just around things like fraud detection and risk management in the banking sector. Um, you know, it's, it's it, from an industrial perspective, um, we're helping firms around things like predictive maintenance and how do you just make somebody's automobile that much safer and that much more efficient and so forth and so on. And so I think we're getting to real pragmatic applications that make everyday life better. So I think from that perspective, um, it's something I'm quite sanguine about. The thorn is, um, it's interesting when Mark asked about um, what we're seeing from a security standpoint. Um, I think, because you look back at the great hacks from a decade ago, and we remember you know, what those were, um, whether that happened at JP Morgan or you can target, you can go through the whole list. Um, I think that we are going to start to see some AI explosions where firms have opened themselves up to litigation or risk or things are just going to go pear-shaped very, very quickly. And so as there's been this race to deploy this stuff, I think we're going to start to see some explosions as well. Um, and so yeah, that's something that, that certainly, certainly concerns me. Um, but the bud is... You know, everybody, it's, you talk about the book that we wrote of what to do when machines do everything. 
Um, and that was when everybody was worried that the bot's going to take my job and we all have to go to universal basic income and we've got to tax the machines and so forth and so on. It's really starting to emerge that something different is occurring. And it's that it's all about human enablement and human enhancement. And so it's actually the bot plus the person is where I see just incredible growth and incredible opportunity. And so you can take this to so many different vocations, um, but would you rather go to the doctor who's just in those 12 minutes trying to diagnose you, doing it off the top of their head or you know what they've seen across their practice and maybe in the last year, there's been three cases that sort of look like you, or do you want that doctor who is enhanced by the bot where they can diagnose this is exactly what it is. And there has been an outbreak of this in the community. And yes, Miriam right now does have those symptoms and I know precisely what to do. And now I can, now that I've diagnosed it correctly, I can help her very quickly, you know, start, start to deal with this. So you're going to see that again and again and again in vocation after vocation of how do we uh, enhance human activity. It'll make the job much more productive um, it'll, you know, increase the output of those those roles, and I think have a huge societal impact. So um, that that's something where I think there's a lot of case for optimism. Well, thank you for sharing that, and that is really what we're trying to get to with this podcast. Where if people are mindful of the hazards of the ethical concerns, uh, then we can get to better AI that makes our life exponentially improve. So thank you for landing us there, exactly where we were hoping to go, Malcolm. Super. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. What an incredible interview. Malcolm is really such a thoughtful person. He has obviously not only been on the front lines of thinking about and, 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 and implementing best practice in his own company and with the companies that he works with, but he, he's a philosophical person and someone who really asks the big questions as he does that more day-to-day -day work. So um, he's given us a lot to think about. Anything that jumped out to you, Miriam? Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think Malcolm has the ability to both see the big picture, understand complex challenges, and speak in the most simple terms to make his point so obvious you can't help but want to take action. And, and once again today, he's certainly done that by making us think about ethical AI uh, in so many of its complexities, the norms involved and how there's this constant tension between whose norms are we following, whether it's an individual state actor uh, across nations, and uh, also some thoughtful advice as to how we can take action and, and start to answer these questions. A hundred percent. I think this question that, that Malcolm raised of whose ethics is is an important one and one that is inescapable in this in this in this area of AI ethics. And I think we have a lot more thinking to do, um, whether on the government side, on the business side, within civil society, uh, about how to uh, you know figure out what those ethics should be in a particular area or use case, and then also how to operationalize ethical commitments in product design in board decision-making and all aspects of a company's activities. 
Uh, so Malcolm has has really, I think, given us a lot to think about. Yeah, and, and I love the p- fact that he also adds the historical context. He does such a great job of always giving us the example in history that can lead us or scare us or inspire us. Uh, and for instance, with the, the cyber security example, thinking through uh, where we need to be with AI and how we can take lessons from the cyber security world, uh, how the government has gotten involved, how industry has stepped up, uh, and how we need to think of this as a collective threat for us to take on when it comes to building trustworthy, ethical AI. Absolutely. Uh, I think the historical analogies were great. Uh, I had not thought about the relationship between the car industry in the 1920s and what we're facing in AI today, uh, but I'm inspired to, to, to think more about that and to try to find those lessons from history uh, that we can bring into the present. Well, that was certainly a lot to think about, and I look forward to our next episode. You have just listened to In AI We Trust, hosted by Miriam Vogel from Equal AI and me, Mark Kane from the World Economic Forum. Subscribe to or download our podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. We always welcome your feedback, and if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. And to learn more or get involved, please visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org.